This is usually um, my Sunday. I get up uh, and talk about um, January. Uh, it's my favorite Sunday of the year, and it's not January 13th. If you've been around long enough, you know that uh, that's kind of a thing here at Mendham. I got three different, four different texts this week asking if I was going to talk about January 13th. And since it's January 8th, the answer is no. Um, come back the next time there's a January, thir January 13th. But I do want to give you a message for the new year. And um, it's predicated kind of on the simple idea of I think we need to be reminded often, but at least once a year, who we are and why we do what we do. And so that's what I want to do this New Year's morning. Last year, our district superintendent, we are a part of the Christian and Missionary Alliance denomination, and we have a district superintendent over the area we're in, Kelvin Walker. He paid our church a visit on a random Sunday which, you know, could get a pastor fired, really, if you think about it. <laughs> and, and Kelvin, has a, he's a great guy. He has a ridiculously tough job. He oversees over 120 churches in the New York, New Jersey area, from Cape May to Queens, in terms of diversity, right? And as you can imagine, lots of Kelvin's time is taken up solving problems. Um, the church world is not easy. Those are very divergent areas where he's trying to help people with all kinds of different things, transitioning leaders, um, restarting churches, closing failing churches. It's very difficult work. And so I couldn't tell you the last time a district superintendent showed up here. It was well over a decade, at least in my mind. And, uh, and of course, he hasn't been the DS for that long. So he came around last year, and, and afterwards we hosted him for a luncheon up at Grace House with the staff and the elders. And, and first he apologized and, and asked our forgiveness for not being out as much as he'd like to. The reason is, he, he stated that like any organization, right, um, the, the parts that get the, the most attention are the parts that are struggling, right? The squeaky wheel gets the oil, and that's understandable. And in fact, since we weren't very squeaky, it was kind of encouraging. And then he shared with us some observations of our gathering. He had been here, and he had, uh, he had done some research on our church. And I have to tell you, his observations about us, about you and I and this place, they were fascinating to me and inspiring, I think, to all of us that were there. And most of them centered around one thought. He kept mentioning our church's ability to take the message of Jesus and to make it tangible and, and relatable, understandable, and almost irresistible to the community in which we find ourselves living. And so he started asking the elders and I and the staff why we do that and, and more importantly, how we do it. And then he said, you know, I would love for, for you guys to figure out a way to teach this to the 120 other pastors in the district. And so, of course, you know, he said, John, would you, would you be willing to lead that? And I said, yeah, of course I'd be willing to lead it. And, and, and you know, I want to be a team player and all. But the whole time I was thinking, ah, he's just blowing smoke about this, right? Like, it's just well-intentioned, it's complimentary. That's never going to happen. How would that ever happen? Until about a month later when I got a call from the person on his staff that was organizing our district conference, which is a mandatory attend for all licensed workers, and they asked if I would do a breakout session, and I'm not sure ask is the right word, where I would train all of these other churches um, on what we're doing here and why we do it, which of course presented me with a challenge. I've never actually sat around thinking about what we do and how we do it here. We just do what we do, right? And so uh, 
I, I asked how long this spot would be, thinking, you know, maybe it'll be like, you know, 20, 30 minutes. And he goes, well, you know, probably an hour and a half plus time for questions. So I'm like, an hour and a half? I got to fill an hour and a half? And can I just share with you, there is no worse audience than a bunch of other pastors listening to a pastor tell them what to do, right? Like, they're looking to harpoon you. And so I got to work putting words and thoughts and, and plans and purposes around what we do. And I came up with a crazy presentation called Fish, Food, and Focus. And so when I got done with it, um, I brought it back to the elder board and, and said, hey, I want to show you guys what, uh, what we presented at the district conference. And the elders were, were like, this is fascinating. You should share it with the church. And so uh, here, here we go. Um, so I got up in front of all of these guys, and um, I, I began by telling them, look, I'm not like you. Um, you know, I, I never wanted to be a pastor. I, I'm kind of a church outsider. I grew up, I grew up locally to our church. I grew up in Mount Olive. I went to church regularly, super regularly, only on Christmas and Easter. No other times, but very regularly, Christmas and Easter. And so, so I understand people that don't go to church. Those are my people. But I always had, I mean, I loved going to church on Christmas and Easter. I was kind of weird that way. I always had an affinity for God, a desire to know more about him, but actually just to know him more. But, and maybe this speaks to some of you this morning. Maybe you're here for the same reason this morning. I didn't have any context within which to wrap that, you know, inquiry. So I started going to a, a, a local church of my youth, the place where I went on Christmas and Easter, and, uh, and eventually I wound up here at Mendham Hills in 1991. I pulled, pulled into the spot up in that upper lot. I looked at my wife and said, this is way too long a drive. We're never coming here again. <laughs> Literally what I said. Vito, I kind of sat where you're sitting right now, so who knows what's in your future, brother? And, uh, you know, I just was go a guy going to church. But I came in here and I was like, mm, there's something special about this place. And so when I share these thoughts with you, please don't hear that I think I'm the one that's making any of it special. It was special long before I had anything to do with it. And so I, I, I threw myself into the ministry here. I really believed in what the Lord was doing in this place. And, and I kind of grew in, in leadership and, and in faith here in this place. And... Um, and eventually, I got to the point where while I was still a volunteer, I had a career in finance. I went with, I told you some of this uh, in September, I, I took some time off to attend a uh, conference with some other leaders here at the church. And the teacher at that conference got up and introduced me to, and if you have been around, you know it's my favorite chapter in the Bible. But more importantly, through it, he introduced me to a God that had a call on my life. And I, I think he has a call on your life towards these same ends. I, I really believe he, he does. That sermon, that chapter, that God is why I quit my job and I, I, started, I started serving on staff here at Mendham. I taught from this passage a few months ago because it's foundational to who I am and I, I wanted the other guys in the room to know that. It's from the, the book of Luke. Luke was, a, a disciple, was not a, a disciple of Jesus. He never met Jesus, but he was a first century doctor and he, he, he turned first rate historian and he looked into these accounts of Jesus' teaching, and he writes down this highly detailed recounting of, of Jesus' teaching here. It's one of the most famous interactions in all of history, honestly. I'm going to read it from beginning to end. I'm not even going to put it on the screens because I want you to hear it the way Jesus said it. 
There were no screens popping up, right, in Jerusalem. Here's what Luke said, Jesus said. Suppose one of you has 100 sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go out after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then he calls his friends and neighbors together and he says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I'm telling you, in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who don't need to repent. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I've found my lost coin. In the same way, Jesus says again, I'm telling you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. And so he divided his property between them. Not long after that, this younger son got together all that he had. He set off for a distant country and squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. And so he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to, to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with just the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I'm going to set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And so he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to his father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate the story of the prodigal son, one we looked at just a couple weeks ago. In that conference I went to those years ago, this very gifted pastor began with some observations about those three famous parables Jesus strung together. Some of them I pointed out to you a few months ago. Jesus tells three quick stories in rapid succession, and each of them have several things in common. And so what I want to look at with you this morning, just remind you again of those commonalities. The first thing that they have in, in common is that each story, in it, something valuable is lost, right? The first story is about a sheep. He, he's one of 99, and the sheep has gone missing. Now, here's the thing about sheep, right? Again, in an agrarian economy, they all understood something you and I don't. Sheep are notoriously stupid, famously dumb, which is kind of offensive because that's often what we're referred to in the scripture, right? And one of the things sheep are known to do, since they're not all that bright, is to wander off because they're driven by like an internal desire or craving. And it gets them into big trouble. They, they oftentimes follow their own basic instincts without giving any thought to where it might lead them. Now, in the second story, you move from 100 sheep down to just 10 coins. And this woman, this, this widow, loses one of those 10, 10% of her estate. 
And in the first century, it, it's not easy for a woman to just go back into the workforce and replace that. There, there, there was no coming back from it, in a sense. I mean, if the sheep was a, a valuable part of the shepherd's livelihood, how much more so for this woman, that coin? And, and then, of course, Jesus tells the famous story of a father who had only two sons, and one of them goes off missing. Some of, some of you know my son John left for a, a, a job in Abu Dhabi. I never knew where Abu Dhabi was until John went for a job there, and we put him on the plane this week. And uh, there's a, a, a video my daughter posted online of all of us in the driveway crying as he pulls away. Now, my son is a passionate follower of Jesus, and so I feel very good about that. I just miss him because of the distance. But imagine, and some of you know the pain, of a son that is not only distant in, in, in physical space, but but distant from the heart of the father. My friend Gary was here last week. He talked about his, his daughter that uh, he raised. You know, his first two kids were just, just picture perfect. And his third kid wound up a pregnant homeless drug addict on the streets of California. Gary would sit around and wait for his daughter to come home. And so what was Jesus' point in telling these stories? It was simply this. And I remember hearing it at that conference. It was so poignant. When people are separated from God by sin, God feels the loss. And his love for them still says, even though you're way off track, you still matter to me. You really do. It doesn't matter why you're off track. I mean, the sheep were separated by the sin of their own instinct, their own broken nature because of the way they were born, their, their natural inclinations that just flowed out of them. The coin, right? The, the coin was incapable of, of thought, but it found itself in, in the situation it was in because of someone else. The coin was lost because of the thoughtless actions of, uh, uh, in a sense, the sin of someone else. And then, and then there's the son, right? The son's lost because of his own choices. Even in the face of knowing what's right and what's wrong, this son willfully, brazenly chooses the offensive. And yet Jesus goes, yeah, none of it matters to me. I love every one of them. I long for them to be found. They're all valuable to God. The line I'll always remember from that talk all those years ago was this. He says, you've never... He said, you've never looked into the eyes of another human being who isn't valuable to God. He, he actually did a wonderful analogy. Remember, they don't do this anymore. Um, remember when we used to care what we got in the mail? We'd go out and check. Now it's all junk. But remember you used to go out there and mixed in with, with your bills would be that thing, have you seen me? And he, he told the story of how he was getting his bills one day, and he, he was coming in, and he was standing over the garbage can, just throwing the garbage out, and he took that, have you seen me, and he just tossed it into the garbage can, and he said he had this overwhelming sense that the Lord spoke to him right at the moment and said, don't you understand what you just did? That is somebody's child, and you don't care. You just threw that in the garbage. And don't you understand that I have children all over this world, and most of the people of this world just don't care. And he said, I felt this deep longing and calling for God to care about his children all over the world, to not do that ever again. And I mean, that just so resonated in my heart as I sat there. Second thing that, that all of those stories had in common was what was lost was worthy of an all-out search. Like, literally, it was worth a lot of effort, right? 
No cost was too great for each of these searches. To the, to the shepherd, right? The one sheep was so important, he was willing to leave the 99 to go after the one. He doesn't just call out to the sheep. He doesn't, you know, tell people he's missing. And if you see it, he doesn't just post flyers. He goes out looking for the sheep. That's how much the one was worth. And Jesus says that the woman, she lights a lamp, she sweeps the house, she searches carefully till she finds it. We read it like she just looked in the cracks of the cushions and maybe that's where it would be. But the scriptures indicate she had a plan. She, she didn't wait till morning. She had to light a light. It was worthy of even looking in the dark. It was not some silly, willy-nilly search. She went room by room, searched and searched until she found it. She didn't give up when initially it was hard to find. And then you have this father who, whose son left of his own choice. He allowed him to go. But, but can you just imagine every day him scanning the horizon day after day, just willing the wayward son to appear. And when he does, what's the father's response? He, he hikes up his robes and contrary to socially accepted norms and customs, to, much to his embarrassment. Everybody in town would have looked down on a father he didn't carry, ran to greet his son. And again, what, what is Jesus' point? Why are these stories all the same? Because God values people so much that he searches for those who are lost and separated from them. He's not indifferent. He doesn't just send down, here's the Bible. You see, before I understood these stories, I, I assumed my relationship with God was like this. I, I've sinned and I'm separated from God. So I need to do something. I need to get myself in order. I need to get myself fixed up in order, I, in order to get back in God's good graces. He's like way far off and mad at me, and I need to do something to get back to him and, and please him. But Jesus is saying, no, no, no you don't understand my dad. I, I didn't find God. The, the sheep didn't find the shepherd, don't you see? The coin didn't find the woman. They're incapable of finding their way home. They were lost. Somebody had to go find them. I'll give you one more thing the other the three stories have in common. Finally, just as importantly, there's this. In each one of them, the thing that has been found, right, the one who found it, who loved them because they mattered so much, they throw wild parties and celebrate like crazy. Shepherd finds a sheep, calls all of his friends together and has a party. Woman finds the coin, calls all of the other women in town together and said, I, I found my coin, and they celebrate. And, of course, the father finds his son and throws the biggest party of all. Jesus' point? He said it in the story. I'm telling you, in the same way, over and over he said it, and again, do we take this seriously? I tell you, in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who don't need to repent. Jesus was saying, if you want to know what makes the heavens rejoice, if you want to know what makes the Lord sing, every time one single sinner, one single person far from God is found and comes home, the party starts in the kingdom of God. For me, it started in a booth of a Roxbury diner on Christmas Eve in 1986. A big banner was unfurled in the kingdom of God that said, Welcome home, John. For some of you, that's your story too. The banner unfurled, and, and I hope you can name the time it did. My name was added to that invitation list for the greatest party ever to be held, the wedding feast for the Lamb of God. If yours isn't there, I would encourage you this Sunday, this New Year's Sunday, to make sure it is, to seek after God and tell him you believe Jesus is exactly who he said he is.
And this celebration, it's repeated time and time again. And, and when I left that conference, I, I came to a different understanding of who God was and the love of God for me and for others. And, and it just, I mean, I was like, this is what I want to do. This makes so much sense to me. I want to give the best of my life, my best effort and time to this task, to this search, to this project. Friends, that day my mission became, and over the last decades, incrementally so, uh, it, it's become, I think, our shared mission here at Mendham. Why are we so intent on reaching our community? Why does Kelvin show up here? He goes, I had heard this about you, but I experienced it when I was with you and your people. Why? 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 Because this is who Jesus is. This is who our dad is. Now, that's not a great proprietary vision statement. It's not like I came up with it and somebody said, I never thought about it before. In fact, Jesus, we're just under shepherds, right? Even, even pastors, we're not really shepherds. We're just under shepherds. We serve under Jesus. It was the great shepherd who laid out, in a sense, the mission. You all know it. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus' marching orders. Jesus' mission statement, right? He had given it in another form earlier. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And so a couple of weeks ago, I looked around at all of these pastors gathered, and I said, here's my overarching point for all of you guys from which everything else flows. If you want to reach your community, and I would echo this to our community, if we want to reach our community, if we want to transform our community, this needs to become, for everybody that gathers and hears this this New Year's Sunday morning, it's got to become a little personal. These are your father's children. It has to become our mission, your mission and focus and calling. See, the problem, the problem for churches oftentimes is churches just become these places you go. There's almost like this underlying thing that's built into the culture. Well, I just, I just want to go to church. See, see, for churches, a lot of times, it becomes about trying to just be a place people go. Their vision gets a little wonky and fuzzy. I'm a corporate guy, right? I spent 20 to 25 years in corporate America. I worked for First Fidelity Bank, First Union Bank, Washington Mutual Bank, Dime Bank of New York, uh, LVIR, private equity investing company. And here's what I can tell you. For a lot of churches they get the mission and vision thing confused. Because churches heard, oh, you know, everybody has a mission statement. Now we need to have a mission statement. So churches started coming up with mission statements, right? They get the mission and vision thing wrong. Actually, I think they get two things wrong. First, vision statements, right? What churches, where churches, this gets kind of funny if you want to have some fun, but I guess it's not fun to, to do this, but maybe it shows a little bit of my issues. <laughs> First, what most churches, and you know, I was saying this to all these guys looking at me. I'm like, guys, most of what you're calling your vision statements are actually mission statements. They're not vision statements. Here, I showed them. Here are some super, and I knew that some of these were their, their, their vision statements, and well, they were actually mission statements. They were calling vision statements. I said, here's some of the ones that I see that are out there. There are mission statements, not vision statements. And I told them, I'll tell you why that matters in reaching your community in a minute. And so I put some of them up. Um, Maggie, you can pop them up here. Do you have this? To know Christ and to make him known. Anybody ever hear that as a church's um, 
Well, they would say vision statement, but it's actually a mission statement, right? Because a vision is what it looks like when you get it right. That's what we're going to do to try to get it right, right? So that's a mission statement. To know Christ and to make him known. That is of uh, the Navigators is a Christian ministry. I believe that the Navigators started that. I would tell you if you look at 20% of the churches around, that's their, their vision statement. It's not a vision statement, it's a mission statement, and it's not theirs. It was the Navigators. It's just a really good one. The next one, to turn irreligious people into fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ, that was Willow Creek, which in the 90s and early 2000s had a huge impact in the church world, and so giant swaths of churches still have that as their vision slash mission statement. And then how about this one, to make disciples who make disciples. If you're a church person, go on, go on churches, you'll see everybody says that that's what we're going to do. We're going we're gonna to make disciples who make disciples. So I told them, um, guys, I know some of you even have these as your statements, which, you know, I could hear some murmuring. I said, first, these are mission statements, right? And mission statements have to be driven by vision statements. A vision is what it looks like when you get your mission right. It's what it'll look like if you carry out the mission. The vision is the promised land. The mission is how you get there. But if you don't have a vision for what it looks like when you get there, then the simple question is this. How will you know if you get it right? How will you know when you're there? How will you know if your mission is working? What will you evaluate it against? What will you measure it to? Is your mission working? Is, is it serving in and resulting in the vision? Do you see, I said to them, how important this is? What are you aiming at? Do you even know? And the old saying holds true, if you aim at nothing, you'll hit it every time. So at this point, it was like the Oscars where they started trying to lead me off stage. <laughs> you know, the music came up. Which then I just kept going. I said, leads to your second problem, your lack of personal vision. I said to them, look, every person in this room is here because I know you are called by God into ministry for his kingdom. And so what is that call? What is your mission? Why did God call you? How were you built? What gets you jazzed up? I think part of the reason we're not reaching our communities, part of the reason the district had shared, um, they do an annual report, right? And, you know, it's tough in the church business these days. I don't know if you're aware of it, but uh, a lot of churches are struggling. And uh, they went, you know, they did the old, let's share the good news first, and then went through some of the bad news. And I said, I think uh, the reason that we have a lot of the bad news, right, the reason we're not reaching our communities is we're not personalizing the vision. The Navigator's mission is wonderful, and I looked at all of them, and I knew they had it as their vision. I said, it's wonderful, but it's not yours. To make disciples who makes disciples, that sounds really good. It reads good on the website. But it's a mission, not a vision, and it's not yours. I looked at them, I said, almost none of you got out of bed this morning and said, man, I cannot wait to get started making disciples who make disciples today. And if you don't have a vision, how will you know when you get it right? So overarching point one, I said to him, if you want to reach your community, you better come up with a personal vision for what it's going to look like if you do. And then with that in mind, come up with a plan, a mission statement for doing it. Something that drives you, something that gets you up every day. And I know what my assignment is today. I know what it'll look like if I get it right. And I shared with him what all of you, if you've been here for any amount of time, know. About a decade or so ago, I asked you all to get excited about a vision, about what could be, and then asked you to join me on a mission. Like the woman in the house, I set out with a goal in mind, and I came up with a plan. 
I took out the map. I looked at, in 2010, the census population of our communities. I looked in every town that was in one town, within one town of our church, every town that touches either Mendham or Chester. I added them all up, all their populations up, right? And I took out what George Barna's work said in terms of the percentage of those folks who had any kind of personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And that number, some of you remember, 92,962 people living within one town of our church that have no personal relationship with God. People that God wants found. And for that reason, 10 years ago, I began saying that number to you over and over with enough repetition, enough repetitiveness to make it come out of our, our noses. Over and over. I was sitting with a, a friend in the conference, and uh, he knew I was speaking the next day, and he goes, what are you speaking about? I said, well, I'm speaking about Mendham's um, mission. He goes, oh, the 92,962? I said, yeah, that's it, right? And so we put this magnet together. This was on brochures, handouts, screens everywhere, right? Everybody knew it. They didn't get the number exactly right most of the time, but they knew it. This year I updated it, right? You remember 96176? In fact, we put this as a map here of all the roads around our area, and the heart is where we are. The number went up. I'll explain why in a, in a little bit, but quickly on vision. You might look at this and go, well, isn't this kind of like corporate? We shouldn't do a corporate thing because this is the church. No, no. All truth is God's truth. L let me show you. The scriptures are replete with vision statements. John saw one, right? Here's John. Here's what John saw. Here's John's vision statement. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I see this, he said. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he'll dwell with them. They'll be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He'll wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, I love this, write this down. For these words are trustworthy. Write it down, John. This is important. I am a fan of the Dallas Cowboys, America's team. Theologian Emmett Smith once said, it's only a dream until you write it down. Then it's a goal. Peter understood that. Here's what Peter wrote down to, to the churches. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into wonderful light. And so I asked all of the pastors, right, does your vision include your community? Are your people inspired and excited about what it could look like? Now, here's what, what our vision is at Menem. We don't talk about this as much, as much, but it's right on our website. If we get it right, right, we would be a transformational community of faith, hope, and love so compelling that people near to and far from God are drawn to Jesus. My, my vision is that when I walk in ShopRite, I hear people asking each other, I wonder what's happening at Mendham Hills tonight. I told the men and the women gathered that if Luke 15 makes your heart sore like it does mine, then you need to get your church to own and understand and celebrate its mission and vision. Say it until they own it and celebrate like crazy. This is why we do those baptisms at the lake. We do what Jesus said to do. We celebrate like crazy when the lost are found. I'm, I'm telling you. 
I was in CVS this week. This is awkward when your pharmacist knows who you are, right? Because they know all the things you're taking, right? And so I walk in and I'm minding my own business. Hey, you know, she says to me, all I ever hear about is your church. I said, really? She goes, oh, yeah, everybody comes in here, and somehow or another, because I'm a person of faith, they start talking to me about your church. And when are your services again? And so I, I took the pastors then. They, look, they just want practical, right? Just tell us what to do. All right, fine, right? And so I, I said, I'll give you some practical. I said, uh, and this is the truth, and, and I was thinking about Connie um, Baker is here today. I, she'll remember this. On my first day as the lead pastor at Mendham, I came into the staff meeting. I wanted the staff to understand that we had to change our expectations. So I introduced them to my spiritual mentor. He's kind of my spirit animal, John Taffer from Bar Rescue. Raise your hand if you've ever watched an episode of Bar Rescue. Raise your hand, please. Don't be ashamed because I've, I love Bar Rescue. Raise your hand. No, I want to see him. Raise your hand. Right. So... In front of this room with more people in it than right now, I said, how many of you all, all these pastors, how many of you all have watched Bar Rescue? One person. And I said, well, this is your problem, right? <laughs> I can tell you right now, you have not watched Bar Rescue. You need to go back to your church and take your staff and sit through a few episodes of Bar Rescue. Why, right? I mean, if you've seen one episode of Bar Rescue, you've seen them all. Because somebody comes in and basically goes, what are you people doing? Right? And so you know what I did? I, I'll never get asked back. I, I said, I know you don't believe me, so we're going to watch one together right now. And so there at the district conference, I threw up an episode on the big screen of Bar Rescue, right? And all these pastors were looking at me going, who is this guy, right? <laughs> so I made them watch 15 minutes of Bar Rescue, right? And it was just brilliant because, you know, they go, in, they go into the bar and there's all of these beer taps and there's just a, a scribbled on piece of paper that says, no beer, right? No draft beer. And the sign's been there for months, and then there are, you get, there, people are asking for drinks, and, oh, we don't have, you know, we don't have any of this, we don't have any of that, and there's flies everywhere, blah, blah, blah. And, and so, meanwhile, the two owners are in the back, and they're not concerned that there's no draft beer in the bar, or that there's nobody in their bar. They're in the back talking about, I think we should do goat yoga classes here on Tuesday night. <laughs> and, and I looked at all these pastors, and I said, don't you see, this is what we did yesterday. They, we, we spent a, a full day on polity discussions, which basically, like, arguing over who can use the term reverend. Literally spent a day on it. Rome is burning. The churches are emptying out. We have no, ta we have no beer on tap. <laughs> but we're spending days trying to figure out, what, you know, what the proper usage of, of different terms are. And I understand that's important. I, I, it is important. But if you want to understand why a lot of churches are struggling, that's a little bit of your answer. There is way too much time spent on business other than what's the passion of the Father's heart. Remember the men in vision? I told you uh, the numbers went the wrong way. It's not like we haven't accomplished anything. I shared some perspective on this with you all a week ago. I, I said to those guys, I said, guys, look, a lot of times guys get up here and they blow smoke at you and because they have billions of dollars in money and, you know, 100 people on staff. We have four, four full-time employees at Men and Mills. We, we exist on a country road in an in a, a, a increasingly liberal town. I said, but we have been blessed to continue to baptize hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. And we've taken some ground, Right? 
Uh, if you want to assume the most people that are part of your church show up on Easter or Christmas, if those are the people maybe you're influencing in your community. In 2012 for Easter, we hosted 555 sons and daughters that God wants found. In 2022, we hosted 926. How about this? In 2012 for Christmas Eve, we hosted 472 people. This year, almost 1,400. And by every means, whether you look at small group involvement, giving, can I thank you again, in a year where the stock market was down over 20% and inflation is as high as it's been in 40 or 50 years, more money was given into the ministries of this church last year than ever. For at least the 10th consecutive year, giving went up in this place. You people are phenomenal. This is why Kelvin walked in here and goes, you gotta, you gotta, your church can help us. We're making a difference, but I, I told you, things went the wrong way number-wise. Why? Not because we haven't done our job, right? It's, it's, it's attributable to what's happening in the culture, the rise of the so-called nuns. A decade ago, when I did the math to, to get the 92,000 number, the nuns, or as Barna calls them, the don'ts, meaning they don't know, they don't care, or don't believe that gods exist, while one out of... While, while one out of 10 U.S. adults qualified for that category in 91 and again in 2001, the segment nudged up just a couple more percentage points by 2011. So that number didn't move much. But in the past 10 years, the number of don'ts nationwide has tripled from 12 to 34%. The American Worldview Inventory, this annual survey of Americans' worldviews, right, they, they, they reveal 43% of millennials now are don'ts, the highest of any adult generation in the country. This is what Barna concluded as a result. I read this to you in September. That we need to own this, church, because there are lost sons and daughters that God wants found. The United States has become one of the largest and most important mission fields in the world. We are faced with a young adult population that is breaking the established patterns. They do not embrace many of the core beliefs and behaviors that characterize those who came before them. This new America we see emerging is radically different demographically, politically, relationally, and spiritually. It is a young, non-white, mobile population. It is largely indifferent to the United States and is demonstrably skeptical of the nation's history, foundations, traditions, and way of life. They are technologically advanced, sexually unrestrained, emotionally unpredictable, and a spiritual hybrid. Christian ministry as practiced for the last five decades will not be effective with this unique population. And yet every single one of them is of such great value. They are worthy of an all-out search and when found, celebrating. And as a result, here's what he concluded. Looking ahead, he said churches need to invest heavily in reaching children and equipping their parents, offering a solid foundation of absolute moral truth, reimagine typical church services and programs, and foster bold and creative leadership. Like never before, I believe we need to reimagine and increase our efforts to strategically transform this new cultural landscape with biblical truth. All of this reminded me of something Andy Stanley said one time. It resonated with me, maybe because our church is in horse country. This is what your neighbors might be thinking. Out where I live, he said, there are dozens of stables and riding rings, covered, uncovered, high-end, low-end. There are signs everywhere advertising riding lessons, claiming to have the most qualified, experienced trainers and the finest facilities. But I've never once turned down one of those gravel driveways to check out a riding ring or interview a trainer. Why? We're unhorsed. Nobody in our family rides horses. We're not non-horse riders because we can't find a clean stable or a qualified trainer. We aren't unequestrian because we can't afford to rent or purchase a horse. 
We don't lack interest because we don't know what a horse is, just the opposite. We know enough about horses to know we aren't horse people. It's not what we do. If the finest stable with the most qualified trainers in America moved into our area, we still wouldn't go. Post-church and de-churched folks find even the best churches, churches perfectly resistible. Why? They aren't church people, at least anymore. And so what do we do? This is what I told the guys. I'll give you another pillar of ministry for reaching our community at Mendham. In a non-horse world, you've got to do what Jesus did. Here's what John said. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, and a great crowd of people followed him because... Does anybody know why a great crowd of people would be following Jesus? Why do you think they might be following Jesus? Because they wanted to serve him. Because they wanted more of his teaching. Because they were Jesus' people. No. They were following him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. He was healing them. He was meeting a very real need in his community. He was giving them something that they wanted. That's why they were coming. Don't spiritualize it up. He met their needs. He gave them what they wanted. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who who is to come into the world. After the people were healed, after he gave them what they wanted and what they were looking for, it validated in their mind who Jesus was. It gave him permission, if you will, to then do something else. No healings, no audience. No healings, nobody listens. No healings, no perceived right to talk or authority. Jesus now says to them, Very truly, I tell you, you're looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate in the loaves and you had your fill. Do not work for the spoils, but for for food that's spoiled, but food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Guys, do you see this? Jesus even gives their motivation. He understands what it is his community was looking for. And not only that, he doesn't shame them. He doesn't call them spiritual or Christian consumers and write them off. Instead, in light of giving them it is what it is they, they wanted, now he offers them instead what they need. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. And Jesus declared, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Guys, I, I, I told everybody there that day, I'm not breaking any new ground for you here, but in a world where there are no more horse people, almost nobody's looking for a good church. I drive down Main Street in Chester every Sunday morning, and people seem quite happy as they go about their business. In fact, in a world where the church is no longer seen as good or right or true or even moral, in a world where the church by many seen as representing what's wrong and hateful, we have to believe what Barna is saying to us and think like missionaries. We have to begin to do what Jesus did. We have to become good news again to our community. The church needs to become beautiful again. Friends, we have to be the most powerful force for good in this neighborhood. And that's why I'm committed to 2023. I hope hope you'll join me in that commitment. To be a force of good in this community. Let's keep being good news. Let's keep being the force for good in our town through what we offer them as we meet their needs so we can offer them what they truly need. We're doing this so well. Divorce care, divorce care for kids, grief share, reboot. My friend Gary talked all about reboot last week. 
I mean, we, we, um, Financial Peace University, single parenting, the Mark Gregston seminars. We're doing it on Sunday mornings to the best of our ability. We, we, need, we need you all, like when you're serving on the welcoming team here, this has to be the friendliest, happiest place on earth, right? Disneyland should be embarrassed about the way we make our guests feel here. <laughs> That's what it should be. When we're doing it on Sunday mornings, right, we want to make our teaching accessible and practical. Next week, we're going to begin talking about relationships, healthy relationships. If the greatest commandment is to love our neighbors as ourselves, if they'll know we're Christians by the way we love, we better get it right. And our community needs us to get it right. They want us to get it right. They're looking for friendship and community. This is why you need to get in a community, get in a small group, be a friend. And then finally, let me just close with this. I, 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 I got to get out of here. Um, I, I, I could tell you a lot about the faces on all these guys when I was giving them. Um, remember Barnes said, we need to invest most heavily in reaching children, equipping their parents, and offering a solid foundation of absolute moral truth. I believe incrementally that in the coming years, this will be the sweet spot for the growth of the kingdom of God. This is right now in our communities their greatest felt need. Everybody on each side of the aisle doesn't matter what your worldview is, in these communities, they're worried about their children. We are fighting about our children. You see the passion around it everywhere, right? Go to, I mean, we have to send, my, my son-in-law is a police officer. He has to show up at Board of Education meetings now. That's how passionate we are about our children. I told you there was a Notre Dame study that came out that said, if you want to pass your faith down to the next generation, you need to ensure that there is a whole group of adults that are around children that know who they are and care about their lives. That's what passes the faith on, right? Can I just be honest with you, right? Let me just be totally honest, all right? We can't be the people that go to Board of Education meetings and flip tables over and not show up and give a rip about what's happening upstairs with our children on Sunday morning. You can't do that. This is why we're called hypocrites. There are a hundred children that show up here at Menham Hills Chapel on Sunday morning to know people love them and care about them, to want to feel valued, to be taught about the things of God. And I have to tell you, why is it that every church in America cannot get anybody to serve in children's ministry? It is to our shame that we do this. If you're not involved in children's ministry, right? I'm just telling you. I'm just telling you. We should, I, I can't tell you how many times I get a call on Sunday morning. I, I got four openings. I can't, we have nobody for the kids. I just want to encourage you, if you're not involved in children's ministry and you care about children and you got a kid up there, please go to mhcc.life, go to the connection card thing and let the folks know upstairs, man, this is the future of the church in this community. This is the way we're going to reach them. This is the way we're going to meet their needs. We're going to do it through their kids. Friend, band come up. There was a guy at the men's, friend of mine at the men's mentoring retreat this year. He got up and he shared his testimony. He said, my daughter, it was very clear she'd almost, she'd almost killed herself. She'd almost hurt herself. And somebody in this church found her and invited her to a youth group. And her life started to change. This is the power of children's ministry and youth ministry. And so the father started going, well, what is this church? I better go check this thing out. And so he came here and he started going, I can't believe that this is actually all true and right. And so he, he said that he had spent a lot of time on um, transcendental meditation and other, 
other religions trying to find God, and he came here, and he's like, he, he showed up in my office. He gave the testimony thing. He said, he showed up in the office going, who are you people? You changed my daughter's life. And he stood there at that men's mentoring retreat, and he said, and now you've changed mine. A friend of mine sat here with me last week when my friend Gary got down. He said the same thing. Who are you people? Friends, don't you understand there is nothing like the local church when the local church is working right? Let's make it work right. We have to reach our full potential because this community needs us to reach our full potential. We are the force for good in the neighborhood. Every person matters. Jesus said, I am going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I wanted to give my life to that. I'm hoping that you do too, or at least a couple hours. The greatest privilege in all of human life is when Jesus taps you on the shoulder and says, I have a role for you to play. I am building my church, and I want you to join me in it. Friends, in 2023, love freely, serve joyfully, shepherd selflessly, give sacrificially, pray unceasingly, follow unwaveringly, and, and believe. We are the church. He wants you to play a critical part. All you have to do is say yes. Let's stand and sing.